Welcome to episode 201. We've cracked the double century. So, how would you feel if your meat, your steak, your roast lamb, your chicken wings, how would you feel if they came not from a farm, but from a laboratory, grown in an incubator, surrounded by people in white coats and blue gloves? Do you think it would be healthier? Do you think it would be just as tasty and delicious? Do you think it would do the same things to your body that it currently does now? Do you think it's safe to take animals out of the food system? The reality is, with a growing global population, companies and corporations are searching for as many ways as possible to get food and nutrition into what is predicted to be a 10 billion person planet and to keep everyone healthy. Or maybe more realistically, keep most people somewhere between not dead and pharmaceutically viable. (laughs) On this episode, we go deep, coming from very different viewpoints on the topic of lab-grown meat and meat alternatives that companies are putting into the marketplace. If you're concerned about the food supply for you and your family in the future, and particularly the meat supply for the lives of your kids, then this episode is a must because taking a position on this issue now is going to shape the way that we eat in the future and the way the food industry evolves. Remember, having the knowledge allows you to vote with your dollar and voting with your dollar is the most important thing you can do to shape the world you want. So, here is an eye-opening episode and a great conversation on meat that no longer comes from the farm. Let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Rap that you're here with us on what is no doubt going to be a super interesting episode with all of the intentions of taking your mind and your concept of food, health, and nutrition, and the future of our planet to new places. Before you, we drop you in the hot sauce, I need to mention that this year in 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. Okay, so today's guest is a lovely family man from California in the USA. We have Paul Shapiro, not to be confused with Ben Shapiro, who is joining us uh, and he's a huge bundle of success in his area of expertise. He's the CEO of the Better Meat Company, which uh, uses fermentation to create plant-based meat-like products. He's the founder of Plant Based on a Budget, and he is a four times TEDx speaker, which if you YouTube his name, you'll find quite easily, but obviously listen to this podcast first. (laughs) Paul is an authority on food and agricultural sustainability, and also an author of the best-selling book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Your Dinner and the World. He reached out a little while back wanting to discuss the topic of lab-grown meat, meat grown without animals, which is something I equally feel passionate about, and so we've got him here to discuss what is no doubt going to be a very controversial topic, as in my research, it was on the internet, so it must be. Uh, Paul, my friend, welcome to the show. How are you? Maddie, great to be with you, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your um, your slogan there where you said, uh, drop into the hot sauce. I've not heard that one. I like that. It's good. That's good. <laughs> The hot sauce. It's um, yeah. Well, it's a good place to be sometimes to spice things up. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good, very nice. Uh, well, let's spice uh, it up. I'm I'm eager to chat all things meat with you, both uh, conventional and alternative meat. Yeah, let's do it. So I was sort of in my research phase, um, and was asking a lot of my clients uh, and a lot of my health professional friends. Um, about what their thoughts were or what they might want to ask you. I'm just trying to get a, I was trying to get a snapshot of, uh, you know, the health professionals and sort of 
everyday people that don't work in the health and food space in my clients to get, a, to get an idea of where everybody's at. And the number one question that I got was, what exactly do you mean by lab-grown meat? Um, <laughs> some people were like, yeah. is it real cow cells? Is it, is it not? Is it totally vegan? What is it? So maybe let's start with some clarity around that. All right, great. Well, you know, first, Maddie, let's just think about the meat experience right now, right? So, you know, think about like fossil fuels, right? We get energy from fossil fuels, but there's lots of ways that we can do that. You can get from coal, from oil, from natural gas, and so on. Uh, but similarly, we can get energy without fossil fuels, whether it's wind or solar or geothermal and more. But the experience of using that energy is similar, right? You might use it in different ways, but similarly, you're getting, you know, to essentially have power that you don't otherwise have. Well, the same is so in meat. You can make meat in a lot of different ways, whether from chickens or pigs or cows or from a whole variety of other species of animal. Um, but recently, there's been a bigger effort and interest in recreating the meat experience without animals. And so you can do that in a variety of ways. You can do that through what's called plant-based meat. So it's basically taking plants like soybeans or peas or wheat and transforming them into things that look like animal meat. You can do that through what's called clean meat or cultivated meat or what you're referring to as lab-grown meat, which is basically not an alternative to meat, but is actual animal meat that is simply grown from animal cells rather than animal slaughter. And you can also, instead of using plants or animals, use fungi, which is an entirely different kingdom. And you can do uh, a type of fungi fermentation that creates another kind of meat experience that is different from animals and plants, but is still very meat-like nonetheless. So those are the three things. And so, again, you get three kingdoms, plants, animals, and fungi, and you can recreate the meat experience using any of those three kingdoms. Gotcha. Okay, that's good. There's a bit of, bit of clarity going on. And I guess, you know, there's a lot of people, I'm based in Melbourne, so um, a lot of people that have either been here or spent a lot of time here know that we're, uh, we have a lot of vegan, vegetarian restaurants with all sorts of different meat alternatives. And we're one of the cities, I guess, in the world that has the luxuries of these restaurants and access to all of this food. But um, I can imagine many of uh, the people in the world don't, you know, and, and so it's probably a new concept to them, this idea. Um, so I guess let's get straight into it. Why is lab-grown meat a good idea? Why, why do we need it? Why, yeah, why is it even a topic? Sure. Well, the planet's not getting any bigger. So humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet isn't getting any bigger. And one of the primary ways that we leave our footprint is through our food print, principally in the amount of meat that we eat. It just takes a lot of land, a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, and a lot of animal treatment that most people don't want to really consider in order to raise and slaughter billions upon billions upon billions of animals for food, which is what we do today. And so there's 8 billion of us walking around on the planet right now. And we're going to probably have another 2 billion of us within the next 30 years walking around. So where are we going to raise all these other animals, right? People want to eat meat. Like humanity wants to eat meat. Uh, we know that. Like, you know, it, it's very clear that as soon as, uh, as soon as nations that are undeveloped start developing and they start getting more money, one of the very first things that they do is they increase their meat demand. So the areas where meat demand is increasing the fastest are places like China and India, where uh, people are escaping poverty, thankfully, and entering the middle class. And one of the very first things they want to do is eat more meat. And so when you consider that, we're going to have an even bigger global middle class and we're going to have even more people on the planet who also want to eat meat. Like we can't just cut down the rest of the forests on the planet. You know, we need to do something differently. And so that means finding new ways to recreate the meat experience. 
And so the real goal of the people who are involved in this movement that we're talking about is to satiate humanity's meat tooth without animals so that we can produce all of the meat that people want to eat without having to destroy the forests, without having to pollute the water, without having to exacerbate climate change, and without having to commit so much animal cruelty. And so just as, as just a quick example, Maddie, so the number one cause of deforestation in the world is raising animals for food. It's not just where the cows are standing on pasture land, that's part of it, but it's also growing crops for them. That also means then the number one cause of wildlife extinction is raising animals for food. But in the same way that you know, for thousands of years, the only way we got ice was out of nature, was out of, you know, going to lakes and rivers that were frozen and cutting ice out. Then we figured out technology that allows us to make ice, right, that we can recreate the ice experience just through human-made technology. Uh, well, for thousands of years, we have only had one option to get meat, which is basically out of a slaughtered animal's body. Now, we are creating technologies that allow us to get meat, or at least the meat experience, without having to have such a heavy footprint on the planet. And just in the same way that when art when, um, what was then called artificial ice was invented, when refrigeration was invented, there were some people who railed against it. They called it artificial ice. They said it was unnatural. They said it went against God. They said it could sicken your kids. They railed against it. And now, you know, we all have artificial ice makers in our homes. We call them freezers. We don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all. In fact, we probably wouldn't even consider without, we probably wouldn't consider living without them. Um, well, I, I think in the future that, you know, we may refer to these kinds of meat today as like plant plant-based meat or cultivated meat or, or fungi-based meat. For the future, it might just be meat. We might just think, hey, this is now, we, we used to get meat one way, now we get it in another. Yeah, I think I think there's some issues with the ice analogy though, because everybody can, like you said, create the ice at home themselves. Whereas mm -hmm. we can't create lab-grown meat because nobody has a laboratory in their home. So are you suggesting that possibly one day you'll be able to cultivate um, it'll be like, get the meat ready for winter and in, in, in fall or autumn, you'll start putting your petri dish together and you'll put it in the fridge out the back or the incubator out the yeah. back. Um, right. Because c control over the supply of ice means that it's mm. not tampered with, it's not contaminated, you know what's in it, uh, even though there was yeah. some opposition in the beginning. But I suspect the opposition that we're going to see now, and I probably identify as somebody that's in opposition to it, right, is that um, it's in the hands of somebody else. Right. Well, yeah. So uh, I think you're making an excellent point, but I will say like a freezer is a laboratory. Like, you know, you don't have, you don't know how to make ice. Like you have no idea how to make ice. You don't know how to go get the Freon and all the other things that it takes to make ice. So you have a machine in your house that makes ice for you. And yes, mm -hmm. I do think that in the same way that today you have people who are brewing their own beer in their house, that you will have people who are making their own meat. I don't think it's that unrealistic to consider like, you know, today you walk over to somebody's house and they might have a bread maker or an ice cream maker on their counter. And those are cool things. Um, but what if they had a meat maker? Like what if they ordered like little tea bags full of stem cells and they could make their own beef or their own kangaroo or whatever they wanted to make? Um, I don't actually think it's that unreasonable. So in the same way that today you can get your beer from a large corporation that is a big brewery brewery, or you can brew your own beer at home. I actually think that in the future that we will have both of those, that we'll have the big meat companies today, still the same big meat companies today will be making other types of meat that don't involve animal slaughter. But there will be people who are doing artisanal uh, meat that they're making on their own. In fact, I, I like to think about like going to a restaurant 
and they might be brewing their own IPA in the back, but maybe they are bearing their own pork and the pig from whom the cell was taken is like living out back of the restaurant in a pen and you can go tip your hat to the pig and, and go dine <laughs> on a sausage made from that pig cells. Like, I think that's a pretty cool future. Like to me, this is not about really changing necessarily what we're eating as much as it's opening up new culinary possibilities that are better aligned with sustainability. Like humanity has to find ways to lighten our footprint on the planet. Meat is a huge part of that. But it doesn't mean sacrificial. It doesn't mean that we have to go without. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be eating beans and rice. Um, frankly, I think beans and rice are fine to eat. I eat them. I like them. But I realize people want meat. So let's give them what they want, but just do it in a way that causes far less harm. So like, there's so many ways that we can take this conversation. But I want to come back to the, um, where, the way you mentioned like buying beer from a, a corporation. So I guess there's we're going to go down that path first, which is the concern that um, if we... Like right now, everything you're saying sounds like a great idea and it sounds like it's painting this beautiful utopia of how we're going to live on the planet with all of these different people and it's going to be really great. Um, but also, if a corporate entity is in control of the protein supply, like I'm like 50, 100 years from now, we've got major corporate ent- entities. Bill Gates is buying up all of this farming land all over the world and he hasn't done particularly many, many good things for humanity in the last few years with the way that he's been a part of controlling the globe with vaccines and med- medicine and big pharma and the money that he donates to these organisations that he gets to control. Um, so m- my concern is that if we get to a stage in society where the only way to get your protein or, or any nutrient intake is by buying these cells that were cultivated by a corporation that has massive financial interest in controlling you, uh, then we're at risk of being given food that affects our body, that affects our DNA, that's got things in it that we don't know about. Um, and I saw a study not too long ago where they were trying to put vaccines into lettuce, into lettuce crops on farms. And so whilst it sounds like a good idea in the beginning, like all great ideas, the corruption will arrive very soon and the opportunity to control countries and nations with food security issues and and whatever we put into it is of much greater concern to me than the fact that I can drive down. I'm in Mel- the city of Melbourne. I could drive 50 kilometres, maybe maybe 60 kilometres, uh, which is what, like 30, 40 miles to a farm by an organic cow that's been raised you know, by people. I can see how it's, it's lived its life. And that, and, and if I really wanted to, I could buy a cow. But maybe in this dystopian future, which feels after the last two years relatively likely, um, it's actually illegal to own a cow. Like, you know, I see these as genuine possible fears of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've not heard about the, um, dis- or the disallowance of owning cows. I've also not heard about the uh, vaccinated lettuce heads. But that does sound like the beginning of a cool sci-fi movie, like, you know, the vaccines, the vaccines and lettuce. Uh, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, it, it almost like it's like how Little Shop of Horrors got started, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, nobody's talking about eliminating the current sources of, of meat, right? So, I mean, even today, like, you know, well over 100 years 
after cars were invented, like people can still use horse-drawn carriages if they want. We still have them in most major cities. Like people still go do it. Uh, most people switched. You still have some people today who prefer print photography rather than digital photography. But you can't mm -hmm. get around the fact that digital photography is more efficient and is preferred by a lot of people. You have some people who are like artisans or, or artists who really prefer print photography. And that's great. Nobody's going to stop them. Nobody's going to, you know, yank them out of the dark room and make them go do digital photos. They're just going to continue um, doing it in the way that it once was done. And I think that people will still do that with um, for the reasons that you're pointing out. So I, I will point out, though, that the way that meat is the way that nearly all meat is produced today is an accurate description of how you just put it. Having a very small number of companies controlling nearly all of the meat supply. That's the that's the present day scenario. And so, like, if you don't want that, there are ways that you can get around it and do like what you just said. Um, but that's not what most people do. Most people just buy meat from the supermarket or from fast food restaurants, and they don't think about it. They just eat it. And they like it. And so they eat it. It's affordable and they like the taste. But the way that we produce that meat, the vast majority of the meat that is produced today is produced in ways that are really not that savory. I mean, even in addition to the animal welfare problems, which are quite severe, these animals are oftentimes pumped full of antibiotics and or hormones. They oftentimes live in windowless warehouses where they're standing in their own feces. Uh, they're living beak to beak or snout to snout. They're not really ways that you would feel comfortable with either from the perspective of the animal or from the, the perspective of your own health from eating that kind of meat. And so, you know, I don't know what the stats are in Australia, but in the United States, more than 70%, 70% of the antibiotics that are used are just given prophylactically to farm animals. Like, think about that. They're not giving them to farm animals, the ones who happen to be sick. They're prophylactically given to them because they are kept in such squalor, in such overcrowded conditions that these pro, uh, antibiotics help to keep them alive and to help them grow faster than they would otherwise. So, you know, when we think about just how unnatural and unsustainable the current methods of meat production are, the idea of offering some type of meat that's divorced from the way that we currently raise animals, it, it seems naturally preferable to me. I'm not saying it'll be the only type of meat that is offered but i do think it'll be an increasingly large portion of it i think with the um the issue with like the horse and cart example or the photography example is that there's there's a political responsibility to controlling the narrative and that's a sentence we've heard a lot of in the last few years because governments and facebook like you know you, on facebook you get an instagram and i was one of them i was deplatformed and so the catch is as well that if these corporations and entities in the future which control the food supply from a laboratory not from a farm where you can actually go and see the cow is that we're in this situation where it's prohibitively expensive to go and find a horse and go and find a cart because there's like the greenwashing of greenwashing of the message that like this is the healthy way and and we're going to and and as well like the reason that healthy food is not cheap is because all of these crop farmers that produce the sugar and the grains that go towards the you know the major things that we consume bread pasta cereals are heavily subsidized because a lot of like, well, and, and why is that? And that's the government not doing their part to, to incentivize the right type of farmers to produce a healthy population. So if we're in the situation where governments are, yeah, you know, doing this lab grown meat is the best thing ever. Clean meat is amazing. We're going to subsidize those farmers. It's now prohibitively expensive to eat real meat, which humans have consumed for a millennia, depending on your belief system of how long we've been here. 
Right. Um, yeah. So first of all, I, I agree with you. I think the agricultural subsidies, at least in the United States, I don't know what they're like in, in Australia, but at least in the U.S., they're, they're totally screwed up. But one of the more subsidized products is meat. <laughs> like, you know, we should be eating more fruits and vegetables. And those are not what are receiving the lion's share of the subsidies. Those are really, uh, you know, going to uh, the crops that are being grown for livestock feed, like uh, like corn, uh, which is you know primarily used for livestock feed. So I, I agree like that. We need to get subsidies uh, more logical, but that would mean, you know, how, you know, essentially creating a little bit more um, instability in what meat prices have been for some time. Now, I, I don't dispute that humans have been eating meat for thousands of years. I think that's very self-evident. However, the experiment that we have been running for the last uh, 70 or so years with factory farming of animals is not what we have been doing. Like we have selectively bred animals. Just take chickens as one example. Nearly all of the chickens who are consumed, both in Australia and the United States today, have been genetically selected to grow so big, so fast, that most of them can't even take more than a few steps before they collapse underneath their own bulk. Again, they're living wing to wing in windowless warehouses in their own feces. They're usually pumped full of antibiotics. Like this is not a conventional way that animals have been used for food. And so I'm, you know, but it does make meat cheap. Like when you factory farm animals, you do drive down prices. And so I, I, the concern that you're raising, Maddie, that, you know, you, these technological advancements are going to render the old fashioned ways of producing meat more expensive, like that already happened. Like right now we have factory farm meat that represents nearly all meat that is sold in the developed world. And the type of farming that you're talking about, you drive down 50 kilometers down the road to see a cow, like that's less than 1% of meat production, really. Um, and so, you know, this has already happened. And so the question is, what do we do about that 95 plus percent of meat that's coming from these factory farms? And people could continue eating it, but it will put us on a civilizational crash course here. Like we cannot keep on producing meat this way. It is far too taxing to the environment and we just you know we can't sustain it like maybe if we were a population of billions fewer people but we're not you know population is going up in the next 30 years not down per capita demand for meat is going to go up not down and so we got to find ways that we can you know just in the same way that we need to divorce cars from fossil fuels by you know going electric we need to find ways to divorce meat from the slaughter of animals and it won't mean that all meat comes from that way. It just means that we will be displacing some of this factory farm meat with a product that is a lighter footprint on the planet. Yeah, yeah. As, uh, uh, as you were talking there, I was thinking, so the reason that I left my um, job as a scientist in Western medicine is because um, I was fed up with the idea that we were not focusing on the cause of disease and it was mm. looking for problems that we can temporarily band-aid and continually profit from. And that's a general general comment, obviously, but in most chronic disease instances, that's that's the operation um, of you know the way that a hospital functions um, and because it's the pharmaceutical company as a business. And so I guess I'm thinking like focusing on an alternative meat solution on the front end is not looking at the cause of the problem and you brought it up there and it's factory farming and the way that we look after animals is at the root of the problem. And so why don't we focus our attention on shifting the farming model um, like to regenerative models where animals are happier, plants are happier, the biodiversity is is better, the nutrient value is naturally better? Because I think we're, everything I've discovered in medicine is basically 
nature knows best, no matter how much Big Pharma tries to create a molecule that tries to mimic it. Uh, right. So, you know, first, let me just say, Maddie, like my, to my wife's chagrin, like, I don't go to the doctor. I'm like, I like I'll suffer. I don't care. Like I, I, I always fear that something will get worse if I go to the doctor. So uh, I share your instincts on, on that issue. Um, now on the question of like regenerative, I'm all for making that shift because I think the world would be a better place, but it would mean eating a lot less meat. Like, you know, the people who are advocates for regenerative agriculture generally have a slogan. It's um, it's eat less, eat, be, eat better meat less often. Right. That's like their big slogan is like better meat, but less meat. And the, I think that's a noble goal, frankly, to, you know, basically have people who are uh, raising animals where they don't suffer as much and where it's not as taxing on the environment. But it would mean one more expensive meat and two, a lot less meat. And so if humans are happy to do that, to eat a lot less meat than they do today, great. That's fantastic. My experience, though, has been that people generally eat as much meat as they can afford. It's kind of like driving. Like, I think it would be great if people wanted to walk and bike more, uh, but people seem to really like to drive. And so we need to find ways to make cars more fuel efficient. We need to find ways to make cars electric and so on. Uh, my experience is that m m many people do want to eat less meat, but a lot of people don't. You know, a lot of people want to eat meat at every day or maybe even even more than once a day. Like in the developed world, it's become normal to eat meat two or three times a day. Um, and the planet just can't sustain that. We're not going to produce that regeneratively. Like we're going to have to eat less meat. And so either people will switch to eating things like hummus and rice and beans and lentil soup, right? Like that could be one option. But I think more likely is that people want meat. And I mean, I was actually at a plant-based festival recently. It was pretty interesting. Um, this is a, a festival for people who are there because they're interested in plant-based eating. And there was uh, all these like vendors there. And they're like, you know, some of them are doing like kale salads and some of them are doing like, you know, quinoa wraps. And then they had Beyond Burgers. And the line for the Beyond Burgers was like maybe 20 times longer than the line at these other places. And, you know, to me, that meant like even vegetarians, even like people who want, who attend a plant-based food festival want meat. And like that's why they're going for the experience. Like they, they want meat but without the animals, right? And so like I, I if I thought that humans would just be happy just to eat a lot less meat and we could get them to switch, that would be great. Uh, sadly, my own experience has been that people seem to really love meat and want as much of it as they can get their hands on. And so that's why I think we need to do something here to recreate meat without animals. Um, but what you're talking about, I think, is a noble goal, too. It's not mutually exclusive of that. It just would mean basically expanding the current production of those out. But it only goes so far. Like you still would need to take up the slack from the factory farm meat with these type of alternative non-animal meat sources. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. 
And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Hey, hey, my listeners, what's up? If you're enjoying the episode thus far, please consider writing a review and dropping in five stars on the Apple podcast page of this show as it really does help the visibility of the podcast to guide other people to find it. And as well, it helps other curious people just like yourself prior to tuning into the show to see whether or not this podcast is a good fit. And I, of course, hope that it is. And so that's really the best way to support our work and what we do here on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. Oh, and I also love seeing you share the episode on Twitter Instagram or Facebook and I often reshare those posts so be sure to give me a tag at Matty Lansdowne. Okay, let's get back into the episode. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've got a friend that's based here in Australia, um, Ray Milladoni and he runs a company called Farming Secrets which is all about converting, helping conventional farmers convert to regenerative models Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons, nutrition being one and health being one but yeah, the health of the planet and and climate change that that really play into that, you know, root cause of the problem type situation. Um, But I I was thinking too, like it's interesting you mentioned the fact that even at a plant-based event, humans naturally go towards the most meat-like experience. So, and, and it reminds me as well, I've seen like videos on um, Instagram or YouTube or whatever I was watching where this a, a vegan dog owner or pet owner will go on TV and be like, my dog is naturally vegan. They, they go towards the plants first always. And so they, they do a test live on TV where they have meat in one bowl and they have plants in the other. And it's hilarious because the dog always goes towards the meat. And they're yeah. like, oh, my God, oh, no. And it's this huge entertaining you know, scenario. And so I would, I would argue you know, possibly against all the vegans in the world that the idea is that we naturally go towards meat and meat-like things because our evolutionary instinct tells us that the nutrient density and the nutrient value of something that was you know, alive and living in nature, and obviously factory farms are not nature, but is going to be far more satiating and nutritionally satisfying than any type of plant-based option, which is why we go to that first. And even in the privileged world where we can get it multiple times a day, we instinctively prioritize that on our plate. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first of all, I'll tell you, my own dog is like extremely anti-vegetable. Uh, he will, you know, we will not let a piece <laughs> of fruit or a vegetable pass his lips. Um, it's interesting. I've even, I've offered him uh, plant-based meat and usually he can detect it and won't eat it, but there, he will eat impossible burgers. Like he, that's like the one brand that can fool him. Um, and so I, I, you know, my hat's off to impossible foods for like making, making that hurdle to get it to pass my dog's lips. Um, <laughs> now with that said, uh, so first of all, like you're, you're arguing about what's natural and I, I don't dispute that at all. Like you look like, you know, human ancestors ate meat. 
uh, chimpanzees eat meat. They don't eat a lot of meat, but I suspect if they could eat more of it, like if it was easy for them to, that they would. Interestingly enough, you know, gorillas don't eat any meat at all. Like you think about our closest ancestors, which are chimpanzees and gorillas. Um, gorillas don't eat any meat. Like they don't eat meat ever. Like, lo- like so-called prey animals will walk in front of them and they do nothing. Um, they're herbivores. Um, whereas chimpanzees do eat meat in the wild, although not that often. But it's pretty clear, you know, you don't see a lot of tribal societies out there that are uh, living herbivorous lives, right? They, they're they're called hunter gatherers for a reason because they're hunting and they're hunting animals and they're gathering uh, plants. So yeah. I don't make the argument that you know this is, let's say, like um, uh, natural per se. Um, but I think a lot of the things that we do aren't natural, you know, like air conditioning, uh, talking over video, uh, email, like driving, flying, like all of these things are unnatural. So I'm more concerned about how do we coexist on this planet with the other species on this planet without destroying everything. And you know, my fear is that we are going toward a cliff and that the, one of the biggest reasons, not the only reason, but one of the biggest reasons we're going to the cliff is because we are factory farming tens of billions of animals a year in conditions that are completely inhumane and unsustainable. And so if we can satiate the meat tooth that we have, and I admit that we do have it, without doing that, or with dramatically uh, raising dramatically fewer animals, I think that's pretty good. And so, like, I'm less concerned about what's natural as much as I am concerned about what is the right thing to do in order to maximize our chance of success as a species and as a planet. And so, it's very clear to me, like, that we we need answers to the problems that we have and you know again more than nine out of ten of the animals who are eaten in the first world in places like australia and the united states they're not coming from anything that we would consider a natural system you know they're they're coming from systems that most people don't even want to hear about let alone would they be comfortable visiting and so we kind of crossed that bridge a while ago as to whether we're going to produce meat in a so-called natural way. Um, but if there were fewer of us, maybe you'd have people just hunting and gathering and, and do it the way that we did for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but now that we have 8 billion of us, we need some, we need some solution. Yeah, well, and it, that brings up a topic that a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about, and that is why do we have this many people to feed? Um, and I would argue that the reason we have this many people to feed is because we found high-calorie, low-nutrient-dense foods and, again, refined grains. Our governments perpetuated that with food pyramids on terrible data, um, and now we've got a whole world of overweight, sick, and dying people because of the poor nutrition supply, and we're trying to make a tiny bit of nutrition go further and further and further. And so there's part of me, and it's the evolutionary biologist, um, which, you know, it's an uncomfortable part of a nature conversation, which is, unfortunately, we need probably a few less people on the planet so that we can feed the people that are here very well so we can produce the next generation which are actually healthy because the current generations uh, like are being born to mothers that have lived on sugar their whole lives and had um, high carbohydrate diets are often considerably overweight um, and that's not a judgment of their character but it is indicators that they're highly likely to produce offspring that have allergies that have got behavioral issues that have got mutations in their DNA that lean towards um, autism or uh, you know being on the spectrum for something and so I think, yeah, people feel a bit weird talking about, like, how did we get here? 
Why should we have more mouths to feed at half the nutritional density than they actually require? Because our medical and pharmaceutical problems are just going to keep growing. The more technology we've gotten, the more population we've gotten, the more problems we've gotten. It doesn't seem to get any better. Um, yeah, you know, what's interesting is like, I agree, like, you know, health span is definitely worsened, although lifespan appears to keep increasing. Mm. So like, of course, you know, people are, are living longer, but they're not that healthy during those years. And that's a real concern uh, from all, for, for a lot of reasons, both economically, ethically, and so on. Um, there's a you know, there's a lot of people who talk about like, oh, like what's the carrying capacity of the earth? And it really depends on how we're living, you know? So some people made projections, you know, of, of various numbers um, of how many humans is like the earth capable of carrying at different uh, consumerism scenarios. A lot of it is focused on how much meat they're eating actually is such a uh, resource intensive thing to do. Um, but you can't deny that, you know, society is getting more uh, unhealthy in some ways, like we're more overweight, incidences of heart disease and type 2 by diabetes are high. I mean, e you know, even in the United States, which, um, you know, during the uh, during the pandemic, like heart, heart disease still by far ranked number one for death of both men and women in America. And we know that's a, a largely preventable uh, disease that you that is, you know, through diet and, and lifestyle is largely preventable. It's not, you know, you're not genetically determined to have a heart attack, right? Like people have heart attacks uh, because of lifestyle most of the time. And yeah. yet it's the number one killer. And you think about the response to the pandemic, like to the response to COVID and, you know, basically lock everything down. But nobody's locking down over heart disease, which kills way more people, way more people than COVID ever did. And, and so, like, you just look at this and you think, Man, like, where are we getting our priorities right here? Um, and so interestingly enough, you know, meat demand and per capita demand for meat keeps on going up. And so as people have gotten, you know, more and more overweight, like I do think like refined sugars and so on, like you think you're diagnosing a correct problem here. Um, but it's not lost on me that per capita consumption of meat continues to increase as people are getting more and more overweight. And that's a real concern. Like that's a real concern for society, and it's a concern for these people who have to endure uh, really serious health concerns as a result of it. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and it's it's yeah, it's scary because it's becoming normal to be that way. And um, well, I would say it is normal to be that way now, and to be healthy and a healthy body weight. It's it's you're the odd one out. Oh yeah, in the in the U.S., it's now more than two thirds uh, of of Americans are overweight. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a yeah complex problem. And the, the interesting thing too, talking before about um, all the things that aren't natural, is that what I've learned from my you know career in medicine and health and wellness, and and what I do now, um, coaching people, is that inevitably all the things that are natural are what we need to do in order to cure or heal or fix. And deviating from that path for a period of time is what caused the problem. So as, mm. you know, as appealing as the allure of technology and science is, um, and it's instantly gratifying in this instant gratification world that social media has really created or the sugar industry has created, that inevitably, no matter at which stage of life, the answer usually is detox your life from the unnatural things and move in a direction of connecting with humans in real life, you know, get off Zoom, yeah. even though I love that well, we can have this conversation, Paul, you know, but it's move, yeah. move towards nature to solve the problems. I wish that we could have it in person, Maddie. That would be fun. But I will say, you know, like we are just still apes. Like we are like 
human beings are a member of the great ape family. We like to dress ourselves up in clothing and the veneer of civilization, um, but we are still biologically largely the same entities who were walking around the African savanna only 100,000 years ago, which evolutionarily is very little time. And so we are living lives that are very divorced from the way that our deep ancestors lived. And that does have consequences. Now, admittedly, there are many things that we prefer about our lives. Again, we have air conditioning, we have access to like unlimited food, we have video conferencing, like we can fly, like all these things that, you know, you could have never done, um, you know, thousands of years ago that we do. And and that's great. I I love it. Uh, But we do need to keep in mind, like we are still just African apes. That's what humans are. And we can't ignore that fact. We're bags of water and bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, you mentioned the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger. So I guess you know a really common concern from a nutritional perspective is that a lot of those meat alternatives have so many chemicals and isolates and compounds in them that at the end of the day, actually eating just beef would be a healthier option than these unnatural chemicals that go into producing these these foods. Is the idea of lab-grown meat in theory, that it is just beef? A few things. So first of all, yes. So with cultivated meat, you're just, they are cow cells. Like that's what the product is. Um, I do want to just defend the Beyond Meats of the world for a moment though, because um, sure, they have multiple ingredients. It's not one single ingredient. But, you know, to get beef, right? Like you, you see on the ingredient deck only one label, but the cows are fed a lot of different things. And they're oftentimes given antibiotics and growth hormones. And that's not on the ingredient label, but it is in there. It's just not on the ingredient label. In the case of a Beyond Burger, though, most of the ingredients are things that you would recognize. Not all of them, but, you know, the key ingredient is, is basically pea protein. So it is an isolate. You're, you're right. It's not, whole, it's not made out of whole peas. And I, don't get me wrong. Whole peas are healthier for you than an isolate. I don't doubt that for one second. Um But, you know, it's not that crazy, right? And the Beyond Burger does have less saturated fat than a regular burger. It has no cholesterol whatsoever. Um, And it uses 99% less land than a conventional burger does to produce it. And so, like, you start thinking about, okay, well, you know, it's not health food, right? It's not, you're not getting something uh, that if you go to the farmer's market, like what you're going to get there. But it is better for you than a conventional burger, I think. And it's much better for the planet. And we can't ignore that, that it is just a dramatic improvement over land use, water use, and so on. And and I don't think that we should ignore the effect on the animals either. Um, You know, we we raise these animals in conditions that most people would not feel comfortable with. Um, And so there are advantages. So I'm not claiming this food is like a superfood or a health food. I am claiming though that compared to the conventional meat that is sold today, it is an improvement. Yeah, yeah. And I and I would agree with you in the sense like yeah, there's a lot of things that go into factory farming um and factory farmed animals that we are unaware of, hormones, vitamins, vaccines um that are injected and and it's a really good point to raise that that yeah, you don't see all of the things that are added in to that particular animal. However, we like we're lucky in I guess Australia in the sense that we have access to hunted food. Um so kangaroos like almost 10 million kangaroos a year are culled basically for being a pest to farms. And so like a lot of that meat is is 100% natural, which is is really exciting. And I think, you know, like if you can get be a part of 
a group of people that go hunting or whether you are connected with someone that can go hunting, whether it's elk or moose or whatever it is, you know, moving towards those, those um, real whole real food animal sources that lived and grew in nature uh, are much, going to be much, much better for you. And I ate a lot of kangaroo myself, um, and interestingly, so does my cat. Um, <laughs> but, you know, wherever possible, going towards naturally hunted meat to avoid all of that, you know, toxic crap that goes into factory farmed animals just to keep them alive in a really unnatural, unhealthy environment, I think I totally agree. Like, that should be a priority over, yeah, eating those foods. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't doubt that um, that type of meat is healthier to consume than the conventional meat, um, but there's not enough wild animals out there for the 8 billion humans who exist to survive on hunted yeah. meat. Um, so, you so, know, the question is like, what do you do? Do you just, you know, eat more lentil soup or do we do some type of, a you know, non-animal meat source? And so like, I, I like, if, if it's just from a public health perspective, sure. I mean, I, I don't doubt for one second that eating wild elk meat is probably better for you than eating meat from, you know, a, a chicken who was raised in a factory farm. Um, there's just not enough elk in the world. You know, like you're not, you're not going to satiate humanity's demand for meat with wild animals. Like it would just cause extinctions like almost overnight. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I would totally agree, which is, I guess why I sort of round out to that. Um, why do we have this many humans on the earth? And I guess there's some possibly some things to consider in the sense that uh, we have an aging population. The, the more educated and privileged it seems a nation gets the, less and less their their children are having babies. You know, my generation particularly is, you know, I know a lot of people that are not having kids, both men and women, yeah. and it's a conscious choice. Well, I'm one of them. You know, my wife and I have no desire to have kids. We have a dog. Yeah. We're very content. And maybe we fall into those categories that you're mentioning. But uh, Me too. I, I'm, I, I'm very content to live my life uh, without any human offspring, I can assure you. Um, but, you know, one of the ways that is pretty interesting, like if you look at uh, demographic changes that do seem to reduce fertility rates. So if you if you want to see population uh, lower to something more sustainable is basically women's education, like the places where you have the highest birth rates are places where women either are prohibited from getting an education or for whatever reasons, they just don't get very much. They're living in you know, places like the highest birth rates in the world or places like Nigeria. And so it's not that women don't, uh, it's not that women want to have, uh, you know, six kids per woman, which is in some of these sub-Saharan African countries, that's the fertility rate is six children per woman. Um, it's not that they want to do it. It's just that they don't often have access to the, either the contraceptives or the social license to be able to control their own reproductive destiny. And so there are organizations out there that I support. One of them is a charity that's called Pathfinder, which uh, works with women in developing countries to empower them both with education and with access to contraceptives. Now, you know, there are, you know, it's not just an issue for the developing world. This is an issue in the developed world where we consume way more. So like on a per person basis, the footprint of the average Australian or American is dramatically higher than the footprint of the average Nigerian, let's say. Um, so it is both a numbers issue and a per capita consumer issue. Um, but overall, I do think that um, it's a particularly uh, it's a particularly effective thing to, to try to improve human society to promote women's empowerment, um, especially in countries where it is very uh in in great need like places that are you know 
nowhere near the type of social equality that exists in a place like America or Australia. Not that those countries are perfect by any means, um, but, you know, compared to some of these other countries, um, you know, it's, it's still, you know, it's definitely yeah. a place where, you, where you'd rather be. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for sharing that. I think that's fantastic that you're involved in those organizations. And I, and I guess from a functional standpoint, any family that has more than two kids, basically, um, like the, the health, and there's plenty of studies around that, the health and the physical structure of that living being, for every single child you have deteriorates. Um, and the shape of the jaw changes, like the shape of the face changes, it gets less and less functional. The youngest one is likely to have the most amount of injuries. And so, you know, when you're in families, um, and I know that I've you know, got people that help me run the podcast that are based in the Philippines and they often joke. It's like, you know, in the Philippines, when you're bored, you have sex because, you know, they know someone that's one of 16 or one, they've yeah. got a friend that's one of 10 or they're one of 12, you know? Um, and, and I think, yeah, the, the catch is that, you know, it might be a good idea from a, a, a race perspective to be like, we want as many of us on the planet as possible. But the catch is that with every single kid that's born, they become less able to survive and function in this world. And therefore to the family, they're a health burden, they're a pharmaceutical, they're an economic burden. And, and, you know, I'm obviously taking out the love component in talking about this, but, you know, practically speaking, it becomes very challenging. Yeah, I mean, look, it's very well established that one of the fastest routes to escape poverty is to have some type of reproductive control so that you aren't burdened with, let's say, six children, right? Um, so, of course, I'm sure these parents lo love all six of their children. Um, don't get me wrong, um, but it is very clear that it's easier to escape poverty when you have um, you know, the ability to control your own reproductive destiny. And so I, I do think it's funny that, you know, there are still people who want more of their race or whatever group they're in on the planet. It's like it's so far removed from anything that I would ever contemplate. Um, like I just it, it's not even it, I don't even think about it, like, honestly. Um, but yeah, uh, like like I, I have zero desire for my own genes to be propagated. Like it means it really means nothing to me. Like, honestly, I I, I love my dog and he is a greatly fulfilling part of my life that, that's good enough for me <laughs> totally well and i think as well like you know people like yourself like you found meaning in helping other humans or maybe other people's kids in in different ways right i think it could be incredibly lonely maybe if you didn't set your life up in a way that gave you deep fulfilling purpose you know mm -hmm. when you get to that age where it's like oh there's not many friends to hang out with because they're all looking after their kids <laughs> yeah yeah, it's true. I mean, look, I, I you know, some people, um, including uh, some people who I know, I think their greatest meaning in life does come from raising their children and, you know, more power to them. Um, that's not where I derive my meaning in life. You know, my meaning in life is really derived from trying to uh, reduce as much suffering on the planet as possible. Like I want to help us to stop committing the type of, of really serious um uh, cruelty that we're committing both to ourselves, to other animals, um, to the biosphere in general, like the way that we produce uh, food, especially meat today has to be reformed. And so that's what I'm devoting my life to. And it does provide me with a lot of meaning. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that actually. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so where can everybody find you and all of your amazing stuff online? 
Oh, that's so nice of you, Maddie. So uh, you can uh, get in touch with me at, uh, so if you go to the website, cleanmeat.com, again, that's cleanmeat.com. You can see more about my book. You can also, you know, get my book anywhere books are sold, whether Amazon or anywhere else. But again, it's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. So you can get in touch with me there. I'd love to hear if you think that I am wrong or you think that I'm right or somewhere in between. I still love to hear from you. So uh, get in touch. It'll be wonderful to hear from you. Superb. Well, thanks for, thanks for jumping on the show and having this conversation and being willing for us to go back and forth with different perspectives. Um, I've invited a few people on that have not felt the same as myself about things in the same way that I did you and just never heard back from them. And I think it's, uh-huh. it's, I don't want this podcast to be an echo chamber of my own ideas. So thank you for allowing that to be possible. It's my pleasure, Matty. It was a fun time for me. I'm giving you a fist bump from California. And when you are, <laughs> when you are uh, in Northern California, I hope you'll swing by. It'll be great to hang out in person. Then we can have a more natural conversation rather than just video chatting. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, and for anybody listening, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, share it on social media, tag everybody. All of our links will be down in the show notes below. Um, I appreciate you hanging out with us. Um, and Paul, to wrap up, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Um, well, there does seem to be a pretty strong correlation just between how much fruit and vegetables we're eating and the diversity of those species. So if you think about like in, in the ancestral times, people were not eating just one or two foods. There's a wide a variety of species of foods that we're eating. And there is are studies that I have been reading about lately that are really interesting, showing that one of the best ways to ensure that you have a, a very healthy functioning microbiome is to ensure a wide diversity of species of plants that you're eating. And so rather than just eating, let's say like bananas and apples, right? Like think about, can you eat 30 different species of plants every single week? And I don't mean plants in the way that like, oh, like, you know, you're eating potato chips and then you got potatoes in there. Like, I mean, real whole food nutrition. Um, and so I am, I've taken this commitment on to see if I can do this to eat 30 different species. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, a purple carrot and an orange carrot like actually real different species of plants. And so it's a fun challenge, um, 30 different species of plants every single week. See if you can do it. I, I think it's, uh, it's quite a, a good goal for your own personal health. I totally agree. That microbiome diversity is going to help everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Awesome, Paul. Well, thanks for hanging out. I appreciate it. Um, and we'll catch you really soon. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks again. It was a fun time. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.